you are listening to Coffin Cast with your host, Kristen. Please be aware that this is a dark subject matter and may be difficult for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Coffin Cast episode 23. I'm your host, Kristen. Hope your week is getting off to an amazing start. You're starting it with me. What could be better than starting it with me and talking about death and murder and mayhem? That's the most cheerful way to start the week, isn't it? But I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Even if you're listening midweek, thank you for listening midweek. We'll finish out the week together, guys. I am a liar. I said there would be no episode, but alas, here we are. There's an episode. I was inspired this week, and I just, I had to do it. The words poured out of me as I was researching and writing and creating a narrative, and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to do an episode. I still have the big episode next week that I am recording on Friday, but I couldn't help myself. And knock on wood, it is still happening. I should I should just preface that just in case something happens where it doesn't happen. But as of right now, it's still happening. So also I wanted to put out there, I know the last few weeks episodes have been kind of short. And I don't like that. I want to get back to where I was, where I was at least 30 minutes or longer. So we're going to, this episode, I we're going to get there. No more 20 minute, 18 minute episodes. We're, we're going back to the old format. And I have a feeling that this episode is going to be one of the best that I do. I think it's going to be a lot of, for lack of a better word, it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be good. So with that, let's just let's just go. We don't need to talk anymore. Take a look at this letter. Hail. March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, the Axemen. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit I shall come and claim other victims, I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axemen. 
I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst. For I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 Earthly Time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain. And that is that some of you people who do not jazz it out that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time to leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that I may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. The Axeman. New Orleans, May 22nd, 1918. The corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Street. Joseph Maggio, an Italian grocer, had closed up his barroom and grocery for the night and had settled into bed with his wife Catherine. At some point in the night, while the two peacefully slumbered, Someone broke into their home and slit both their throats with a straight razor before bludgeoning them both with an axe. Joseph's brother, Andrew, who lived in the adjoining apartment, heard strange moaning and discovered Joseph still alive and Catherine dead. Catherine's head was nearly removed from her body with the razor. Joseph was only able to hang on for a few more moments before he too died. Law enforcement descended upon the scene. They found bloody clothes of the murderer, left there, believing that he changed into something clean before heading out. Robbery was not considered to be a motive, as there were plenty of valuables laid out. A bloody razor was found on a neighbor's property. The razor belonged to Andrew Maggio, who was a barber. One of his employees said that Maggio removed the razor in question to hone a nick in it. Immediately, suspicion fell on Andrew, and he was arrested. He didn't hear the attack take place, even though it was next door. He said he came home intoxicated from celebrating joining the Navy and fell asleep. He was released due to lack of evidence. Fast forward a month, June 27, 1918. Louis Bessemer was in the back of his grocery shop at the corner of Dorgenois and La Harpe. But he wasn't alone. He and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were in his apartment after a night of non-marital relations. They fell deep into a post-coital slumber, when someone broke into the apartment and whacked Bessemer on the right side of his head just over the temple and hit low over her ear. The two were found unconscious the next morning, but alive, at 7 a.m. by a bakery wagon driver who had come to make a delivery. Police found the axe, which belonged to Bessemer, in his bathroom. Immediately, police arrested Louis Obacon, 
a new employee to the grocery who was black, with absolutely no evidence. They said that he had conflicting accounts of where he was that morning. He was later released due to lack of evidence. When Lowe came to, she said she was attacked by a man of mixed race, but her story was brushed off by police because she had a head injury. Again, there were no valuables taken. The media got wind of this case because in Bessemer's home there was a trunk full of letters in German, Yiddish, and Russian. The police began to suspect him of being a German spy, and he was investigated. Harriet, who wasn't doing so well, was in and out of consciousness and said she believed that her lover could have been a spy. Bessemer was immediately arrested before being released two days later due to shoddy police work that got two lead investigators fired. Harriet then told police that she believed Bessemer tried to kill her and hid himself to make it look like a cover-up. He was arrested again. Harriet died two days later, undergoing surgery for facial paralysis on August 5th. When that happened, Bessemer ended up being charged with murder and spent nine months in prison before he was acquitted, after the jury was out for two hours. On the day Harriet died, another woman was attacked. This time, heavily pregnant Anna Schneider was startled awake by a dark figure standing over her. Without warning, she was bashed in the face over and over. When her husband returned home from work that night, he found her face completely covered in blood due to a cut above her scalp, but she was still alive. Her husband said that nothing but 6 to $7 were stolen from his wallet. The home didn't appear to have forced entry. From the scene, police deduced that Anna was beaten by a nearby table lamp. James Gleason, who was passing by, ran from police when they tried to stop him for questioning, so he was arrested. There was absolutely no evidence he did anything save for him being in the area and running when police came after him. When asked why he ran, he said he had been arrested a lot for no reason, and he didn't want to be again. He was released five days later, after a similar attack happened. With the attack on Anna Schneider, police began to wonder if they had a serial attacker on their hands. Also, on a side note, Anna did give birth to a healthy baby girl two days after her attack. As I stated previously, while James Gleason was in jail, Joseph Romano was the next victim of the attacker. On August 10th, Joseph was resting in his room at his niece's house. He was an elderly man, a grocer. His nieces were awoken when they heard commotion coming from his room. They ran in and found their uncle with a blow to his head, and they were also able to see the attacker. He was dark-skinned, of a larger build, wearing a hat and a suit. The door appeared to have been chiseled away, and a bloody axe was found in the front yard. Joseph was able to make his own way to the ambulance with no problem, but all the same, he did die two days later. At this point, New Orleans was officially on alert. There was a serial attacker. Panic began to set in in New Orleans. It wasn't unusual to see people on their porches at night with shotguns loaded, ready for whoever was coming. The heat was on for the Axeman, as he was now being called. And things went quiet for a little while. There was a break in the killings. The panic subsided, and people began to rest easy. That calm did not last for long. March 10, 1919. Charles Cortemilla and his wife Rosie were relaxing after a long day. 
Rosie was napping, her daughter Mary asleep in her arms. The calm was broken by screams. Grocer Orlando Giordano and his son Frank ran across the street to find Rosie in the doorway, bleeding from her head and holding her deceased baby, and Charles laying on the floor covered in blood. Charles and Rosie survived severe skull fractures. Charles fared better than Rosie. Rosie was still in the hospital as she was interrogated mercilessly by the police. She said that Orlando, who was 69 years old and in poor health, and his 18-year-old son Frank, who was 200 plus pounds and 6 feet tall, had done it. Charles said that was not true. Also, Orlando was too old to climb into the window where the intruder got in, and his son was too large to get in the window. Police arrested them anyway. They were found guilty, and Frank was sentenced to hang. Charles divorced Rosie right after. A year later, Rosie recanted her accusation, and the two men were released. It was three days after the attack when the letter read at the beginning of the episode was released by the Times Picune paper. With the release of his letter promising to spare anyone listening to jazz on the night of March 19th, music flooded the streets. Dance halls were filled to the brim and jazz bands played at house parties. No one that night was killed. Some say the letter writer was really just a jazz musician trying to get work, but nobody knows for sure. And it seemed like it may be the end of it. For weeks it was quiet again. Until the Axeman got antsy and struck once more. Another grocer was fast asleep in his bed. Steve Boca woke up to find a figure looming over him, and without warning he was struck by the axe. When he came to, he ran to his neighbor's home, where he collapsed. He couldn't remember anything at all. But all signs pointed to the axe man. Nothing was stolen, and his door had been broken open with a chisel. There was an attempted attack on September 2nd, but the man fired several shots at the intruder, who ran away. Again, there was a broken door from a chisel, and an axe was left in his wake. The next night, a young woman, Sarah Lauman, locked up and shuttered her home for the night, trying to make it as secure as possible. She knew about the axe man, and she was not going to take any chances. She crawled into bed and was discovered the next morning bludgeoned. She had a severe head injury and her teeth were missing, but she was still alive. She survived the attack with a concussion. A bloody axe was found on her front lawn. All was quiet for a month and some change, which was the pattern. It would get crazy, the axe man would take a break. Then, when everyone was calm, he'd strike again. This time, it happened on October 27, 1919. Mrs. Pepitone was sleeping when she awoke hearing a noise. She woke her husband to go check it out. Just as he reached the bedroom door, an axe came down on his head, splattering blood and brains everywhere. Mrs. Pepitone was unable to see the man clearly, but her husband, Mike Pepitone, died. Luckily, she and her six children were unharmed. That was the last anyone saw of the Axe Man, at least in New Orleans. No one was ever formally fingered for the crime. But a story came out of Los Angeles, bringing the Axe Man to the forefront once again. Did the Axe Man get sent back to hell? Los Angeles, 1921. Joseph Mumfrey was living the high life. He was strutting down the street, a la John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, feeling like a million bucks. 
but he was being hunted. A female figure, veiled, dressed in black, descended upon him from the shadows. She raised a gun and fired over and over and over at his back. She walked up to his body and fired one more shot to make sure her job was complete. She didn't run. She didn't hide. She stood over the corpse, gun in hand, and waited. The police arrested her without incident, and she was taken to a nearby station. She was reluctant to say who she was or explain herself, but she relented after a couple days. She said her name was Esther Albano. Formally, Esther Pepitone. She said that she remarried shortly after her husband's death, and Joseph Mumphrey had been threatening not only her former husband with extortion, but also her new husband, who was now missing. They moved to Los Angeles, and apparently so did Mumphrey. She said that when she finally saw him, she knew Mumphrey was the one who killed Mike Pepitone, her first husband. She barely saw anything that night, but she saw him, and she was going to get her revenge. New Orleans police were still eager to get the case solved, so they did their own investigation into the now-dead Mumphrey. He moved to New Orleans in 1911, around the time some peculiar deaths started in the area. The earliest possibly being the Chiambras. They were, however, shot, not axed. The husband died, but the wife survived and gave the name Mumphrey, but didn't know anything else. And it wasn't that unique a name in New Orleans at the time. Later that year, Mumphrey got sent to jail for extortion. It wasn't until 1918 that the Axeman got his M.O. and the puzzle pieces started to fit. Guess who was paroled in 1918, right before the first Axeman killing? Also, Mumphrey moved to California in 1919, after the killings had stopped. While this all makes for a good story, it was all circumstantial, and to police, Mumphrey had no motive to kill the other folks unless, unless they were being extorted too, as they were all business owners and a majority of them were Italian. But none of them claimed to be getting threats. So reluctantly, the Axeman murders stayed unsolved and Esther spent 10 years in prison. To this day, formally, it is an unsolved crime. preparation for this episode, I watched the American Horror Story Coven episode, The Axeman Cometh. It was a fun watch. Uh, they got a few things wrong. They embellished it quite a bit, but that's expected. They have to tie it into their original story. So either way, I think it's a good watch, and Danny Houston is a stone-cold fox. Do not at me. He plays the Axeman. Anyway, that episode is on Netflix if you have Netflix or if you want to watch it. Just check it out. It's called The X-Men Cometh. And again, it's in the Coven season of American Horror Story. Now on to some news. We hit 2,000 listens, guys. And I said when we hit 2,000 listens, we were going to do a giveaway. And it started. So here are the rules. You must follow me on Twitter at CoffinCast with a capital C. 
you must give me a constructive review on iTunes. I'm not saying it has to be five star, but I'd like it to be constructive. If you do not have iTunes, do not use Apple products, that's fine. You can either do it on Stitcher, you can follow me on Spotify and just show that you're following me on Spotify. Anywhere you can leave a review, even Podchaser, you can leave me a review there. Also, you must answer this one question. How many funerals have I been to? It's in an episode. If you look at the titles, you'll probably be able to figure out which episode that one is in. So to show proof of all this, screenshot you're following me on Twitter, screenshot your review, or showing me proof that you are following me on Spotify, and then send the answer to that question in the email. I will send you back a confirmation email letting you know that you have been entered. If you send one and you don't get that email, send it again and I will send you back an email. It's one entry per person. Also, if your review is mean or malicious and not constructive, you're not going to get entered. Sorry, not going to happen. You need to email me at coffincastpod at gmail.com. Email those screenshots and the answer to the question there. It's open to U.S. residents only because shipping is expensive and I'm not making that good podcast money just yet. (laughs) The winner will be chosen at random from correct and complete entries on December 12th and the winner will be announced at the end of the December 16th episode. The winner will receive a Diet Loaf Pass t-shirt. Sizes go up to 3XL men's. Also the book Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers by Mary Roach and a Haunted Mansion Funko figurine. Once the winner is announced, they will have five days to respond with their shipping address and t-shirt size before I do have to give it away to someone else who is ready. This episode was brought to you by Patreon and Anchor, patreon.com slash coughingcast, tiers as low as $1, and no commitments. A special thank you to Andy from 90s Court for reading the Axeman letter. Also, thank you for Shadow Vibe for providing the background music to Andy's reading. Thank you so much. And as always, life is but a dream walking, but death is going home. Have the best week.